I remember, uh, I must have been 11 years old. I was sitting in bed, should have been asleep. I don't know if it was on a laptop or one of the earliest, earliest iPads, but I had somehow managed to start watching Pretty Little Liars. And I think it's episode four. I was watching, I was very enhanced by everything because literally everything on that show was so new to me. I grew up in this very, very strict, conservative Christian commune. Everything was secluded from the outside world. Media was monitored. I don't know how I managed to watch this, but as it's not surprising when you keep people away from things, they will eventually find it. Um, and no, I shouldn't have been watching Pretty Little Eyes, I'm not saying that. But oh my god, I have this vivid memory where one of the lead characters, Emily Fields, she gets into the photo booth with her newfound friend, Maya, and they kiss. And I was 11 years old and I had never seen two girls kiss before. I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know you could be in love with someone of the same gender. I didn't know that it was even a possibility. Because again, I was so secluded from the outside world and the kind of tactics that the commune I grew up in used was not to condemn being gay or being queer. It was to merely just not talk about it to completely eradicate it, because it's kind of the abstinence philosophy, right? If you don't teach it to them, they won't try it. And I was terrified when I saw that. I shut, shut the whole thing off, kicked it off to the side, went under my bed and put my hands together for a prayer and just, oh my god, I was terrified that I was going to end up in hell. Not, again, I wasn't afraid of gay people. I wasn't afraid of being queer. I just knew I had seen something I shouldn't have. And the worst thing was that it had ignited something within me. I felt it. And looking back at it, it totally makes sense. I had a lot, like most queer people will realize when they look back at their early childhood behavior. I had a lot of behaviors that clearly indicated that I liked girls as well. And because I liked that kiss, I was just scared shitless because I knew, you know, if they hadn't talked about it, if they hadn't talked about how much God loves this and blah, 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 then clearly it's not something we're even supposed to do. It's so rare that we shouldn't even know it exists. How dare you? Abomination. That was what I thought. This is episode 40, a Pride special. You're listening to Making a Women in Film, a podcast where we usually sit down with women working across the film and TV industry, but today I wanted to do something a bit different. Um, as you probably know if you've been listening for a longer time, every like 
every 10th episode, um, we do a solo episode. Now, I haven't ever done a solo, solo episode up until now. I used to have a co-host, Shania, but she has to go on because she had a lot of important work to do. Um, so I've never done this fully solo. So please bear with me while I try to um, not ramble too much and not get off track too much. At least, I mean, the good thing is editing. Um... So I'll see you on the other side. Um, but what I wanted to go through today is this is a little a little three parter. Well, I mean the episode is a three part thing. Okay, let me just explain. Um, first of all, I want to go through moments of representation that have made me feel seen. But I also ask you guys on Instagram, what are some moments where you felt seen and. I want to go through those, then we'll move on to talking about actual representation, the power of representation, and both the negatives and the positives and the nuances. Um, I will be talking about a lot of people throughout this episode, uh, talking about a lot of movies, um, so I'll make sure that there's either a full list in the description or a link to somewhere where you can go through everything I mentioned. You're afraid of something, I can see it in your eyes now what is it i'm afraid of you and mom <laughs> why are you afraid of us because i'm not who you think i am <laughs> you're emily fields my little girl i'd know you anywhere i got a picture of you in my wallet i'm eight years old in that picture that's a different girl it's the same girl i just need a new picture it's not that simple Emmy. I'm okay. I'm gay. So, as you could hear, my very first experience of representation was in Pretty Liars with Emily and Maya. And it was three years after that, after that time I saw it, that... I was 14 and I'd finally found out that I was bi and I came out to my parents. And I didn't, I've never really had, at least in like my physical surroundings, had a queer community. I didn't know anyone else who were queer. I didn't know anyone else who was dealing with the same feelings as I was besides online. So representation through media, and t uh, which is also how uh, in fandoms of queer media, not queer media, but queer baiting media, really, Supernatural, Sherlock, where I met most of my online friends who were feeling the same way, who were also young and also struggling with their identity. But the representation in the media and lack of, but that's another conversation, talking about queer baiting, Destiel, uh, <laughs> wait, what's the Sherlock um, ship called? It's not. Is it Warlock? What? What's in? What? What luck? Oh my god! I'm sorry. I don't remember. It's embarrassing that I don't remember because I was obsessed with Sherlock. Um, I was like mourning that shit. I wore black on the day that. 
season four ended because I was so upset that they didn't actually uh, give them a nice gay kiss. Um, but moving on, I there have also been two other notable moments, especially from when I was young, that I really remember hitting me. So the uh, one of them is Callie Torres in Grey's Anatomy, who's portrayed by Sarah Ramirez, who themselves is also bisexual and non-binary. So I'm bisexual, so what? It's a thing, and it's real. I mean, <laughs> it's called LGBTQ for a reason. There's a B in there, and it doesn't mean badass. Okay, it kind of does, but it also means bi. Callie is an amazing character, and she really shows, I think it's, I would say it is the best portrayal of a bisexual character and experience that I've seen on screen, because it delves into both the, um, microaggressions from both straight people and gay people and the nuances she felt magnificent portrayal did the character go off course throughout the seasons as Grey's Anatomy characters do because it's what on its 16th season or something yes but the portrayal of the bisexual experience I will never forget Another notable one that I think a lot of, especially Gen C queer kids will relate to is Love, Simon. Now, again, when I'm going to talk about more about the nuances of representation, I will slaughter this movie. But I, when I saw that, I was, I must have been 14. It must have just been around the time where I was coming out, right? Let's see. When, when did Love, Simon come out? Was it 2018? Wait, no, so I was 16. Okay, scratch that. <laughs> but I was still very much, um, you know, finding, figuring myself out. Um, and that was at a point where I was trying to be more proud because while I had come out to the people near me, and if anyone ever asked, I would be honest, I was still, because of the environment I was in, I wasn't in a very accepting environment. It wasn't intolerant but I knew that if I were to really be fully myself and proud um I would be receiving damn homophobia on the daily you know um so I kind of turned it down and when I saw like Love Simon was coming out I was like ah, oh, okay this is the first time th this was the first time that I had seen um unapologetically gay representation on a mainstream you know big cinema screen and I watched it at the cinema and when I came out of it man the color of my t-shirt was wet from crying as soon as you came out you said mom I'm still me I need you to hear this you are still you Simon you are still the same son who I love to tease and who your father depends on for just about everything. And you're the same brother who always compliments his sister on her food, even when it sucks. But you get to exhale now, Simon. You get to be more you than you have been in in a very long time. <laughs> you deserve everything you want.
Again, it's not because the movie itself is great gay representation. It's not. Um, it's very flawed. But the experience of sitting there as someone who still felt silent, even though I was out of the closet or whatever, I still felt like I was biting my tongue. And watching that, watching his experience, oh, I like still just the feeling of sitting there as someone who was so young and inexperienced and didn't really, again, didn't have a community, didn't have anyone else to talk to. I was just, I was bawling. I was really bawling. I thought it was just beautiful and I felt so seen. And then um, lastly on my list of moments I've truly felt seen, not moments where, you know, I've seen great representation, but where it just hit me. Rosa Diaz coming out as bisexual on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. When you called this dinner, you were so nervous, we were worried you were gonna tell us you were gay. So you would rather me be some dude's mistress than be in a loving relationship with a woman? Well, Jake and I aren't dating, but guess what? Your worst fears are real. I'm not straight, I'm bisexual, and I don't care what you think about it. Screw this, I'm out of here. I think what made me so emotional about this was how they kept on saying the word bisexual. They never stopped saying the word bisexual, which is honestly really rare for bi-representation. That's one of the struggles and one of the ways where I'm like, is it really bi-representation if they don't say it? If it just is like a, oh, she's into boys and girls. She just loves, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Where they never explicitly say it. Like, I feel like the bisexual, the word bisexual is just so erased and obviously not everyone who are attracted to multiple genders do identify as bi i totally get that but i'm talking about you know media from over the past 10 years up until you know when pansexual identities and just general the fluidity of sexuality wasn't really mainstream when it came to television when it came to movies when bisexual the identity, the word, was kind of the only label that being attracted to multiple genders had, they never say it. They never say it. It's not like they don't mention it. Um, And obviously, I feel like there's just so many negative stereotypes about by people for within the LGBT community, with outside of it. So I understand why they might have been like a bit apprehensive towards using it but when i saw ah oh, and so what you want about brooklyn 99 i know it needs to change the show but they just kept on saying it and they never strayed away from the fact that she was bi like the word was just hammered into you after that episode and i was in tears because i'd never seen again like Callie Therese was great but Rosa here, it was just also because um, Stephanie, she Stephanie Beatrice, the actress, she had come out publicly, I think, 
in the hiatus before this season or something like that and um she talked about you know writing like working with the writers um on the show and she asked i think she asked them if uh they could make rosa buy um and there's just something so beautiful about having an actress who had gone through the coming out um experience and then you know just delivering that through rosa and also rosa who's such a unique uh stone cold character um i'll never forget that and then when i asked you guys on instagram uh there were a few mentions that i wanted to give a shout out to too so WXIF sign, which is the official Instagram for the Women X in Film sign. A great, great sign. So please go check that out. Go follow them. Go give them all the love. They said, Blue is the warmest color in the cinema in my small town in France, where I'm from. She also wanted to add that she knows it's a controversial movie and she isn't saying that she endured it all, but it was that first experience. And that's kind of exactly how I also feel about Love, Simon, for Little Liars, like, looking back at it, not too great, really, very problematic, and, yeah, um, kind of sends the wrong message on a lot of levels, but seeing that, oh, seeing that when you're either, when, when you even don't even know that this is something that you might identify with, or when you're questioning, struggling, needing to see almost almost as affirmation on screen i especially get it if again like me you didn't really have a community it just uh it's so important sophie says atypical and book smart all excellent okay i haven't seen atypical but book smart mm, chef's kiss olivia wilde nailed that the whole movie is just a uh, lovely um and Lauren says, Fleabag, where she was mostly interested in men, but never excluded women. Gosh, she's hot. Yeah. Are you a lesbian? Not strictly. Ghostface21527 says, Sydney from Scream, her determination and bravery really made me feel brave. And Zcall111 says, Tomboy. Tomboy. Ah, oh, immaculate movie. Celine Ziyama, you did it again. I also asked you for some of your favorite LGBTQ characters on film and TV. So, Hugo Posty says, Chiron from Moonlight is my favorite character ever. Such a raw and passionate portrayal. You're the only man that's ever touched me. Sophie underscore 3528 says David and Patrick Shits Creek. They are so normalized and surrounded by love. David, I've spent most of my life not knowing what right was supposed to feel like. And then I met you. And everything changed. You make me feel right, David. That is quite possibly one of the most beautiful things. I've ever heard anyone say. Ghostface21527 says Danny from Bly Manor. I love the character and her relationship with Jamie is so wholesome. I think I'm crazy. I think you're surprisingly sane and considerate. Look. 
feels like. Feel like you can't find your. Yes. Brian Talks Film says Sarah Lance from the Arrowverse. Josie Borromero says, I know this isn't film or TV, but Ellie from The Last of Us, because she's fit, but obviously also because she's strong and unapologetic. John of Arc from Clo. I can't see the rest of your full tag, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Patrick from Perks of Being a Wallflower. I always saw him to be proud of who he was. Who's your secret Santa? I'll tell you, Sam. This one's tough. I have received a harmonica, a magnetic poetry set, a book about Harvey Milk, and a mixtape with the song Asleep on it twice. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. This collection of presents is so gay that I think I must have given them to myself. <laughs> and then Zcole111 says, Melvin, far from victim. I love you too much to stop. I thought you loved me. If you do, what did you feel for him? I have a right to know. All right, you want to know. I shall tell you. You won't be content until you know, will you? Till you ripped it out of me. I stopped seeing him because I wanted him. Do you understand? Because I wanted him! We've talked a lot about representation, diversity, inclusion, representation, representation, representation on this podcast. It's a very common um, topic, and it's a topic that I sometimes find doesn't get the full exploration of what representation means, because there are so many layers to it. You have good representation, you have negative representation, and it's not even always just like that. I think, you know, when we say representation, a lot of uh, production companies, producers see that as, okay, we'll just, you know, slam a woman in there, put some black people in there, put a gay man in there. Representation. We are inclusive. And it's not about just putting a body in there. It is about the story being told. It's about the depth of the character. And obviously, even just having a body that is representative of a community on screen can be a huge move. Again, for Pretty Little Liars, Emily Fields, um, and I think this was in, what, 2010, the first uh, season? I mean, not only is she gay, but she's also a woman of color, and yet it is clear that the writers really don't give a shit about her. She is the most bland character on the whole show, a show that is so beyond dramatic that it is baffling to me that they could even have a boring character but emily is boring and that is the that is the fan consensus i say that as someone who like literally <laughs> she unlocked my queerness but she is like the writers don't care about her um, the only characteristic she has is that she's nice, I guess, but they never even show her being nice. It's just something that's said, you know. She's nice and she's gay and she's gay, which means she has to be in gay relationships all the time. She is never allowed to be single. She's constantly, like every single other gay person in the town, she somehow ends up with. And it just, again, perpetrates the idea that, you know, 
gay people are attracted to every gay person there and just because they're gay they should be together and it's just uh it's so tired um and so even though you know it was actually a really shitty uh, representation because she's not a well-done character she is so flat um and she is she is one of the main characters in the ensemble cast you know she not just like oh she's a supporting character no she is the main character there's what five four main characters and she's one of them but they don't care about her she gets probably the least screen time her relationships aren't well done it's boring and again it just seems like it's literally <laughs> her character is literally like companies slapping like a rainbow on their logo during pride month it's just okay we'll put it there we won't do anything about it but at least they know we support the gays. That's how it felt. So you have that kind of representation where it's just um, it's for the it's for the woke points. But in the end, they're not getting the woke coins because they clearly don't care about the character. They haven't done any research into it, and it's honestly, I won't even put that on Shay Mitchell, the actress. Um, it's it's just very poorly job done by the writers. Also. Her first girlfriend, Maya, is also a woman of color. So you literally have a, oh my god, a non-white lesbian couple on TV in 2010. But they don't care about them. They don't care about the characters. And it's just, uh, it's tragic. Also, just on, like, her race and that, in, in the books, she's white. Uh, she's like clearly described as white and I think I think her parents might even be a bit racist in the books I don't remember it's been too long but something like that um and then they you know cast Shay Mitchell instead um and it's just uh, I don't know I don't know if I don't know if it comes from her sexuality or her race or both um, but the writers clearly didn't know what to do about her. Um, so they didn't even care to, you know, get someone to invest a little bit in her. Okay, this is what I'm talking about, rambling. That is one of the issues I'm seeing. Another issue, which kind of aligns with this, is the kind of blanket acceptance. The It reminds me very much of when people say, I don't see race. Um, where it's like, you know, oh, we're all the same. And then, you know, I'm all going to treat you the same. And then it just kind of neglects the intersectionality of experiences that people have. It neglects the racism, the microaggressions, the discrimination, just the different experiences people have because of their race. Yes, we are all equal, but we aren't all treated equal, which means we all have very different experiences of life. And you can't, if you just say, oh, well, I don't see race, you just completely, you know, invalid, not invalidate, but, um, you know, brush over the very real experiences that people who face racism experience. Um, and the same, I think the same goes for uh, LGBTQ representation, where it's the, oh, let's just normalize it. Let's not treat it as anything different. And I want to agree with you. I want in 20 years, I hope to God that it is so normal. But it's not right now. 
It's not. And often the normalization strategy that mostly straight people talk about is treating gay characters and gay relationships as if they were straight. It's about, they really, for some reason, they really don't like coming out stories. Um, And I don't know, I think it's important that we keep on having coming out stories because um, it's so different from everyone. And for some, it's positive. For some, it's negative. But, you know, uh, it's an integral part of the experience for most queer people. Not everyone comes out. Um, not everyone has to, um, and the idea of the closet is kind of disappearing, but I don't think those stories should stop being told. I think we should just have a plethora of different kinds of stories where there's room for everything. Anyway, what I was trying to say was that the idea of trying to make gay relationships, queer identities, quote-unquote normal um, normal meaning heteronormative, um, essentially for the people who are saying that that should be the norm, um, means assimilation. It means treating them as if they're (laughs) very unique experiences within their identity, um, don't happen. Um, and it often means not really having their stories at the forefront, um, and I totally understand that, you know, I, I sometimes I do wish we had more stories where you have LGBTQ characters and their, you know, their storyline isn't just gay, <laughs> you know, that there's more depth to it. And there's other things to their stories than merely their identity, absolutely. And you can absolutely do that, but that doesn't mean that their identity should be erased either. You know, I just, I think, you know, being a queer person, that is something that is always, you experience the world differently. You experience, um, you pick up on different things different uh, habits, different behaviors from people. I am a bisexual woman in a relationship with a man and I am totally straight passing, but I have a very different experience still being in a relationship, um, meeting people uh, where they assume I'm straight than than a straight woman has, you know? Um, I think there's just a lot of, yeah. A lot of more things that can be explored, and I don't. I, I I just really hate the assimilation factor where it's, oh, it's not a big deal. And yes, it's it shouldn't be a big deal, but it is right now because of how little representation we have. Um, it's the fact that you know, when Disney puts in a gay character for like two seconds, where if you literally blink you will miss it, and they still, you know, they advertise, oh my god, it's the first LGBTQ characters in the Disney, uh, not Disney world, but, you know, in Disney movies, um, and, like, it's literally to the point where if you, if you blink, you miss it, um, I don't think that deserves any points, I think that deserves, uh, actual fucking uh, harassment, like, I don't understand how we still praise Disney, and it's mostly Disney, big studios, Disney, you know, in all of their 
things, animation, um, Avengers, like the MCU, Star Wars, everything. It's like so minor what they give and they get so much credit for it. And I understand that we as a community are starved from representation. Disney hasn't had a major openly uh, queer character. They've done a lot of queer coding, but they've never explicitly said this character is queer. Um, and I don't, again, it's the same thing with uh, Valkyrie from Thor Ragnarok, who she is a, a canon bisexual character in the comics um, and is confirmed to be so outside of the movie. They had a scene, oh, but they unfortunately had to cut it. Shut up. Like, literally, I don't think Valkyrie in Thor counts as representation because if you don't know, if you don't look up Valkyrie's sexuality, you, you're not going to know what her sexuality is. Um, what am I even saying here? Yes. <laughs> I just, I understand that we are starved for representation and we'll literally cling on to everything, which is why I clung on to Love, Simon, even though in retrospect, it's, it is kind of in the um, same lane as the assimilation factor, where they took a unique gay experience of him, like, literally being blackmailed and being in the closet, and they put it into a very, um commonly straight trope in rom-coms where they have this big gesture and it ultimately means forcing his like love interest to come out openly for everyone which is so dark and disturbing and terrifying but because it's rom-com they just gloss over it and make it all you know goody goody um also i want to say just well, don't forget it. A lot of what I'm talking about here um, has... I've really um, learned from Rowan Ellis. Uh, she's a YouTuber who does like LGBTQ uh, analysis in the media and history. Uh, absolutely excellent stuff. And she did a three-part series on kind of the future of LGBTQ representation, the mainstream, the different categories that we can put representation into, and she just does an excellent, excellent job. Um, I'll link that series down below. Please go follow her, subscribe, do all of that, because it's been so educational and informative, and really just got my, you know, analytical juices flowing. Um, <laughs> so yes, I'm going a bit off the rails because I don't have another person to talk to so I'm talking to myself but diversity blindness um saying love is love which is all good and is true but when you then ignore the struggles the very very real struggles that people go through because you don't you don't want to be uncomfortable that's really it you don't want to be confronted by how your actions in a heteronormative society um, impacts queer people out and uh, and not out. You don't want to talk about that. You want to just keep on being in your little bubble, you know, because by simply having gay people exist without all of the homophobia, without the struggles, without understanding why our identity matters so much to us, you don't have to confront your own actions. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> um, the other thing that is troubling 
and also a nuanced topic when it comes to representation is the um, is trauma and tragic stories and a lot of people don't like trauma stories don't like tragic lgbtq stories and i totally understand why because you know in our lives we experience so much hatred already and i've gone through a lot of a lot of trauma as a community uh, it's been a long fucking ride you know and a lot of people haven't survived it but then again a lot of people haven't survived it and the lgbtq history has been totally erased. Most people don't really know about the nuances of uh, the community's, you know, struggles. They just think, ah, homophobia, you know, and then doesn't really think much more of it, which is why I think it is important to show the struggles on screen as well. But there is a difference between exploring and exploiting. Um, like there are clear movies where you see LGBTQ people struggling and facing different things without it being traumatic for us to view, without it being, you know, constant death and uh, no one can ever be happy, um, where we see, you know, like Moonlight, this is a man who is clearly facing a lot of things, um, but... I don't think Moonlight at any point exploits gay trauma. I don't think it does. Um, I think it explores it. And it does it with grace and love. Um, And it's truly just a magical movie. Which is why so many of us gravitate towards it. But when the trauma is exploited. Which it is, often. Especially relating to trans representation. Uh, up until the past, like, what, five years? Most trans representation was in, like, you know, um, side characters who were murdered, who were struggling prostitutes, um, who just constantly faced a lot of violence. It was just violence and violence and violence. And if you've seen um, the documentary Disclosure, which is on Netflix, and um, it's basically just a long list of trans creatives in Hollywood who talk about the history of trans representation and also how they have been impacted by the, the impact of trans representation throughout history. And one of the things, I don't remember exactly who was who said it, but one of them talked about how when they were a kid and seeing who they were, when they saw person like themselves being killed every time they saw themselves on tv any representation ultimately resulted in violations that was so scary you know can you imagine that sitting there and you already know that you're going to you know face discrimination face a lot of just struggles uh, when you do come out, but then when the representation you have on screen is not happy, it is just, you know, it's murder, um, it's rape, and it's all those different types of just, uh, yeah. So, but then again, trans people, trans women in particular, 
face violence on a level like almost no other and that needs to be talked about that needs to be discussed but you can tell a story about a trans woman and show her struggles without making it only about her struggles like we queer people we have we will always discrimination microaggressions that will always be part of our lives it always will be But we have so much more to give, so much more to say. We have relationships, friendship, culture. I really, really wish we would see more exploration of queer culture and interests and just history where it doesn't resolve around the death and the violence. It can be, you know, part of it um, without it being the main focus. I think we I just want us to see more personal stories. Um so what basically what I'm saying is I don't think we should stop telling or talking about trauma and violence. But I want to see a you know as I said before I want to see just a plethora of movies where you have all kinds of different ones. I don't think it's a case where we should stop talking about, you know, how uh, queer people face violence and discrimination, you know, that can't be the only stories being told because we have so much, so much more to say. And that goes on to what I was, you know, been talking about recently in a lot of episodes. I feel like that has come up, but one story will never be able to represent all of the community, which is why we need all kinds of different ones and preferably with queer creatives behind the scenes. And so I asked you guys on Instagram, again, if you want to be part of like the polls and the questions and send in your opinions, follow us on Instagram at Making It Women in Film. Um, but I asked what, who some of your favorite LGBTQ filmmakers were. Now, one that came up a lot was Xavier Dolan, who's a relatively young but hugely successful and influential queer creative within the industry. Uh, his work includes I Killed My Mother, Heartbeats, Lawrence Anyways, and Matthias and Maxine. Then we also had someone bring up Pedro Almodovar, an openly gay Spanish filmmaker. He has a fantastic filmography, but some notable ones include Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, All About My Mother, and Pain and Glory. Um, He's one of the few male directors who I feel really, really get women and does an excellent job at representing female characters. And he also has a lot of... um, Queer characters and stories, especially Pain and Glory, so please go check those out. Then someone brought up Greg Araki. Araki? I might be pronouncing that wrong. Um, Who's one of the most notable figures within the neo-queer cinema movement. His work includes Kaboom, Totally Fucked Up, and Mysterious Skin. I believe Kaboom was also the first one to win... um, at, you know, Cannes uh, LGBTQ um, award. So that's pretty awesome. Then we have another Greg, Greg Berlanti, who directed Love, Simon and has also worked on a multitude of DC and CW shows. Then we have the Wachowskis, two trans sisters who you probably know mostly from directing the Matrix series. And finally, Ryan Murphy, um, who's pretty much created a television empire. Like, I feel like everything is made by Ryan Murphy. Um, You probably know him from American Horror Story, Pose. Pose is, like, 
of my two favorite shows, Pose is one of them. Um, it has such a diverse creative team and cast. It has, I believe it has like, yeah, trans, uh, five trans actors playing trans characters on screen, which is just groundbreaking. And all in all, it is, as I was talking about earlier, it is a show that shows the struggles of queer people. Uh, it takes place in the late 80s and early 90s, so obviously it has a lot to do with the AIDS epidemic. Um, but it really shows the fear and the horror so many gay people uh, experienced without exploiting it, without making it the only thing that they are. Um, they have so much more joy and love and it really explores queer culture throughout the ballroom scene and it's just fantastic. It really is. Um, and that is exactly the kind, those are my favorite kinds of queer stories where it's very much focused on a queer narrative and it doesn't stray away from, you know, uh, facing the very real trauma and struggles, but it also doesn't make that the only thing these characters have. It tells such a wide range of stories and it's just beautiful. Uh, another one of my favorite of uh, Ryan Murphy's shows is The Assassination of Gianni Versace, which is also just a gorgeous show. Like, I mean, cinematography-wise, oh my god, uh, with such depth and interesting, very non-tropey uh, portrayal of queer characters. It's obviously also based on real life, and it's kind of one of those not-so-explored uh, sides of queer history, and it's just interesting, and it's a thriller. Oh my god, it's thrilling. This is what I mean, like, we can have um, thrillers where it's not necessarily about homophobia. Uh, you can have gay characters in all kinds of different genres, and I feel like The Assassination of Gianni Versace really nails that. I believe that's on Netflix, too. Um, so as you may have noticed, besides the Wachowskis, all of these are all also men. Um, and so I just wanted to give a shout out to some iconic queer women in film, because um, have you read the title of this show? Um, <laughs> now, there are so many, and throughout this month, I will publish a much more extensive list. So please look out for that on Instagram and on our website. I've just finished my studies. Whoop, whoop, done with college. But um that means I'll have much more time to focus on the podcast, on Instagram content, and on the website. So I will be going and delving into all kinds of different women. Um, but I wanted to go through just, just a few here. Um, most of these are contemporary, I will say that. And I want to go through more of the history of um, queer creatives. Uh, again, please watch Disclosure, if we're talking about a history of queer cinema, specifically trans representation, it is just, oh my god, it's so eye-opening. But first of all, I want to shout out Janet Mock. She is a writer, producer, and trans activist. She was the first w uh, trans woman of color to ever direct and write an episode for television. And she is most notably known for working on Post and also for writing her memoir, Redefining Realness. Excellent, excellent stuff. Now I have a quote from her I just want to read. It's just from her book, Redefining Realness. Beautiful. She says, I believe that telling our stories, first to ourselves, then to one another, and the world is a revolutionary act. 
It's an act that can be met with hostility, exclusion, and violence. It can also lead to love, understanding, transcendence, and community. I hope that my being real with you will help empower you to step into who you are and encourage you to share yourself with those around you. And then we have Celine Siama. She's a French writer-director. You probably know her from directing Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But she's also made two other really great queer-focused stories, uh, Tomboy and Water Lilies. Now, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's basically a... um, Love story between two women in the 1700s, I believe, uh, in France and an island, and it's completely secluded. It is one that falls into kind of the tragic um, sides of queer stories, because they, um, the premise is basically that uh, one of the women uh, has been commissioned to paint the other woman's wedding portrait, and they spend this time on the island and fall in love, but they both know that eventually the muse she has to uh, move to Italy and be married to a man. So that is kind of, it's not, but it's, oh my God, it's so beautiful. And there are basically no men in the entire like two and a half hour long movie. It is just them on screen and it is just about their connection and it is stunning. Mm, I literally cannot, like I'll never stop talking about that movie. Beautiful. Um, but a quote from her I really like is, I think all movies are political. The ones that are not political intentionally are the worst and have the worst politics, I think. Absolutely agree. Then we have Chaldunier, a like, oh my god, I almost just said librarian. Liberian American lesbian filmmaker. She's most known for The Watermelon Woman, which is the first movie about black lesbians made by an openly black lesbian filmmaker. A quote I really like from her is, sometimes you have to create your own story. Then we have Derise, she's a, le- a lesbian filmmaker behind Pariah, Bessie, and Mudbound. All, oh my god, extraordinary movies. Pariah is a coming-of-age movie about a uh, young black lesbian woman and her experience, you know, coming out to her family and struggling through different communities, and it's just... Um, Chef's kiss. <laughs> a quote I really like from her is, the challenge with this kind of work is in trying to make it everyone's story. That can quickly make it no one's story. And so I like projects that are risky and scary and that aren't sure shots. Really goes with what we've been talking about today. Love it. Then we have Disaree Akavan. I'm not sure if I pronounced that your last name right your last names if you're listening if you are listening please come on the podcast that would be amazing uh but she's a bisexual filmmaker and creator of movies including appropriate behavior and the miseducation of cameron post uh i haven't seen appropriate behavior but the miseducation of cameron post is another just really lovely story that does Again, talk about struggles of a young lesbian woman who um, has been caught having a relationship with a woman and is sent to a, um, what do you call it, a um, conversion camp. But it's still, it's filled with so much personality and life um, and it doesn't just focus and exploit and dwell in, you know, the actual conversion of it. So please watch that movie. Uh, But she's also made the show The Bisexual, which is so awesome. Um, I really like something she said, which is, don't wait for someone to enable you to do something. A reoccurring theme here on Making It Women in Film. Don't wait for permission, just go fucking do it. Um, 
And then, oh my god, Isabel Sandoval. She's a trans Filipina filmmaker who wrote, directed, produced, edited, and starred in Lingua Franca, a phenomenal movie about an undocumented trans Filipina woman who starts to work for a Russian Jewish woman in Brooklyn. It's available on Netflix, and it's just one of my favorite movies as of like recent times. She says um, in an interview about the movie, she said, I think I've said before that we don't choose our passions. Our passions choose us. Ever since I was a kid, I felt like my natural mode of creative and artistic expression is through when I was a kid. I would I would just come up with images and scenes and plays in my mind. And these scenes would connect different scenes. And when they're strung together, they form a narrative. And that's how I knew I'm a filmmaker and that I prefer to tell stories in a visual medium. She also has a couple of short films. You should just follow her on uh, Twitter. She's also just hilarious there. Um, but you can find her short films there too, which are all really well done too. And then lastly, I want to talk about Alice Wu. She's an openly gay woman, most known for writing, directing, and producing the half of it. A queer Netflix coming of age rom-com. A rom-com that I feel... Um, I don't want to, you know, um, put two moves up against each other, but I feel like... The half of it really got what Love, Simon didn't. Um, and it just does an excellent job at telling a really just nice, a very, very nice story about um, a young queer protagonist. Um, something uh, she, She's also directed uh, Saving Face, which is another lesbian-censored rom-com. Another thing I really like is that both of these... Um, both of her movies feature uh, Chinese-American leads, which is pretty awesome. Um, something she said is, I work out things in my life through my fiction. Fiction allows me to sort of hide a little bit behind my characters. It's not like my journal. It's more like, okay, I'm creating this character. I'm going to keep creating them until they feel real to me. I'm going to send them off into the world to either do things that I'm too scared to do or to have things befall them that sound like my personal nightmare and then see how they emerge. Which really speaks to me as a writer, as someone just creating fiction. Uh, I think that's beautiful. If you are a queer person listening to this, I also just want to say that you are so loved and so valid, regardless of what your identity is. I just, I want you to know that I love you and our community will embrace you. Um, and I just really hope you can feel proud of yourself, feel pride within you, even if you're not out. I truly just want to just give my heart to you and say I've been there. I am there, um, and we are here for you. Okay, well, I will see all of you next week. Um, and again, as I've said, keep an eye out for new stuff coming up on the website, on the Instagram. want to keep on highlighting um, queer women in film. And yes, love y'all. Goodbye.